0: Welcome to Access, Utah. I'm Tom Williams. At age 22, Michael Leach's dream of becoming a Yellowstone Ranger came true. It wasn't long before he'd earned the nickname Rev for his powerful Yellowstone sermons. In his new book, a collection of essays called Grizzly on My Mind, he shares his love for Yellowstone, its landscapes and wildlife, especially its iconic bison and grizzlies. As he tells stories of human lives lost, efforts to save a black bear cub, a famous wolf who helped Leach through some dark personal days, the unique and often humorous Yellowstone culture, backpacking trips that nearly ended in disaster, and Leach's spiritual journey with his Native American brother. Perhaps you, like him, have been charged by an elk, traveled solo at dawn across Yellowstone's frigid interior, or lain awake in a backcountry tent listening for the breaths of a curious grizzly. Grizzly's On My Mind is a celebration of place, wildness, and the Yellowstone ecosystem. And we welcome in Mike, Michael Leach. Welcome to the program.
1: Good morning from Yellowstone Country, Tom. I'm thrilled and humbled to be here on Access Utah this morning.
0: Well, we're, we're uh, happy to have you. I wonder if we could start with uh, you where you start. Uh, growing up, you were luckier than many, I, I think. You grew up in some beautiful country, northern Idaho.
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Idaho, as we would say, in the in the Panhandle, uh, uh, North, Idaho. North Idaho, it's beautiful country.
0: Okay, Coeur d'Alene area, I think. Uh, yes,
1: sir. Yes, sir.
0: Uh, but uh, even more than that, you had regular opportunity to visit Yellowstone as, as a young man. What 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 did it mean to you at that point?
1: You know, my my love affair with Yellowstone certainly started at a at a very young age. You know, my my parents um, always fostered a, a sense of place, and and as a young boy, I always took great pride in my. Wyoming roots, which run you know four generations deep, uh, and so you know we traveled to the park um, al- almost every summer. You know we also had pretty deep connections to Glacier National Park. You know we would journey up in, to that part of the country where, where my cousins lived often. But um, you know those first memories I have journeying into Yellowstone National Park. You know we've all, I've always referred to it as God's theme park. I mean it's just this uh, it's a place like no other. And when, when you see those hot springs and the and the, the bubbling mud pots and you you know you go to a place like artist paint pots and you uh, it looks like you're you're peering deep into the core of the earth and and watching this gurgling mud. I mean, it's just such a fascinating place. And, and then to have those first encounters as a young boy, as a eight nine year old boy. Um, I, apparently, it was when I was two three four. But my first memories are you know, as a seven eight year old boy with those encounters of a big you know two thousand pound bull bison. Um, so yeah, our journeys to Yellowstone certainly had a, a major major impact on on my sense of place and and, and that pride that I've taken the Wyoming roots.
0: And I guess there could be several senses of that uh, sense of place. One is your your family has deep roots. Your I think your great grandfather you know drove cattle along the Chisholm Trail. Yeah, you have, you have a lot of deep roots. Yeah
1: my my actually it was my great great grandfather. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. Uh and and I guess the other sense is uh, this the sense that uh, we all can have we as we come to love a place
1: a doubt. You know, I mean, I, I have, my, my parents are both graduates of University of Utah, so we've got some some, some youth's blood down there. Uh, but, you know, my connection to the state of Utah, um, you know, it, it really didn't begin until I was in college. Uh, and, and so I don't have the roots in, in the Utah area, but I find southern Utah to be one of the most enigmatic, uh, mysterious, uh, enchanted, and, and mystical places I've ever visited. You know, and I'm certainly not a, a, a world traveler, but I've been a, I've been a few Places and there's there's really few places like the southern Utah. So every spring we journey down to you know that Arches country and down into Escalante and certainly have developed my daughter and I a, a deep connection there and and it's one of the things that excited me about being down in Salt Lake City Park City last week. You know I had a series of presentations. Is I've I've long believed that there's a, a real connection among Utahns um, in the especially in that Salt Lake City Logan Ogden region and Yellow just being that it's it's without a doubt the the closest metro area, and so I think you know, as much pride as those of us who you know come from Idaho, Montana, Wyoming take in in this connection to Yellowstone. I've always seen a, a rich and deep connection between the, the Salt Lake City Northern Utah congregation there and, and Yellowstone. So I, I, the thing about Yellowstone is it is such an iconic place, you know, being our world's first national park. And I've often said it's a it's a place of pilgrimage, you know, from people for people from all over the world. And, and you, you certainly see, um, you know, it's, it's a melting pot, especially in the summer when we get our 3 million visitors from all over the world. And I, I think it's just one of those places people feel they have to visit. And, and once they visit, it's hard to ever leave. And, and many people do end up forming a very deep and lasting and impactful connection to Yellowstone.
0: What is it, do you think, that uh, causes some people to have that lasting connection? Others probably just come through and, and it's a beautiful place uh. Um, I wonder maybe you could we could frame this through the the, the kids the youth that you've uh, brought into yeah. you, to Yellowstone. Yeah. Uh, you you brought inner city kids for example in and uh, at risk uh, youth from uh, from up there in, in your part of the country. Uh, maybe maybe show us this place through their eyes.
1: Wow, that's you know as you touch upon my, my work with youth. You know I founded left the Park Service back in two thousand six and. For six years, I ran a nonprofit organization called Yellowstone Country Guardians. And our mission was to inspire local communities uh, to nurture the wildness and spirit of Yellowstone. And we did so through real grassroots uh, education and outreach programs that were, I think they were very contemporary in their approach. They were a little edgy, and it certainly connected the local kids to the park. And and one of the things that that blew my mind and one of the reasons I wanted to, to, to start that nonprofit is and I was the head boys basketball coach in Gardner, Montana, which is one of the gateway communities there on the north entrance to Yellowstone National Park. And I was really taken aback by the lack of connection that many of the local youth here have to Yellowstone, whether it be in Gardner on the doorstep or where I am today in Livingston, Montana, on the shores of the Yellowstone River, and how few of these young people had the opportunity to really form a connection to Yellowstone. And so we developed the Yellowstone Leadership Challenge and a River Guardian Fly Fishing School, and in particular, you know, I think of the River Guardian Fly Fishing School, because that was always run this time of year, and I look at these kids, and, and it's been four years or three years since our last program, uh, the River Guardian Fly Fishing School program, and I still hear from these kids, and, and how that experience of being out there, uh, you know, I'm certainly a Norman McLean disciple myself, and I'm, I'm definitely haunted by waters, and, and I think just a day out on a river in a wild setting like Yellowstone National Park, you know, where you have a chance at encounters with raptors and bison, and certainly all the various members of our fin community, uh, it, it's it's there's a gravitational pull I think that develops there, and certainly a, a deep and rich connection. And so I've seen the lives of many of these young people in this region touched and changed, and per, perhaps transformed in regards to the connection they've developed. And um, you know, we've also had. opportunity to collaborate with uh, an organization called the C5 Youth Foundation out of Atlanta, Georgia. And, you know, they would bring out kids from, inner city kids from Boston, Atlanta, Dallas, Los Angeles. And, you know, when the kids would first show up, you could always see that they were a little apprehensive about, you know, being fish out of water, if, if you want to say. But then after a, you know, couple hours in the park, they would just light up. And and, and in particular, I write in the introduction about a, a beautiful young lady, probably 16 years old from, from Boston. And, you know, she had these, this, these tightly woven braids, and we were at the Artist Point, uh, which, which I believe, you know, that's that's where Thomas Moran did that famous wa- watercolor back in 1871, a year before the park was established in 1872. And Artist Point has to be one of the most spectacular sites in all of the Northern Rockies. And we were there, and she had tears streaming down her cheek, and um, yeah, I, I assumed it had something to do with, you know, uh, a, a relationship or interaction with one of her peers. And I sat down and talked to her, and she just looked at me. And said, "You know, I had no idea anything like this, anything this beautiful, actually existed in the real world." And so, I just think that that speaks to the the power of Yellowstone and the way that it can inspire young people.
0: Um, I wonder if you tell me a little bit more about the at-risk youth, uh, and I'm interested in young people who've grown up in, in beautiful surroundings. You know, maybe you grew up in Livingston or Gardner. Um, it, I don't know. Maybe do do we take that for granted? You 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 say that the, the, these young people have had some transformative experiences. You Take them into the into the park, though they've they've grown up with some beautiful surroundings.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely think there's uh, certainly a level of taking uh, this this place for granted, uh, re- regardless of. You know whether you're living here in the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, up in the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, or in your case, I mean, we just visited. We were down in, in Salt Lake City, had a great presentation with King's English this week, which is such an iconic bookstore there in Salt Lake, and it was a real honor to be be there. We had a presentation with RAI in Salt Lake, and I was down there with my daughter, and you know, we ventured up to Park City, and she was she was <laughs> in awe of the surrounding landscape down there. And so I think whether it be uh, Southern Utah, a place like few other. Or or Yellowstone National Park and the surrounding area. I do think those of us who live here, um, if if we're not, uh, I think uh, in in this fast-paced world that we live, uh, sometimes we we lose what it means to be intentional. And I think you know when when we get these kids out in the program, we're, we're very. Focused on their being intentional with their connection to the surrounding landscape, and I think when you get out there and, and you 're intentional and you you know journey through a landscape like the Yellowstone ecosystem or southern Utah with an open heart and an open mind, which is what we really challenge these kids to do um, there 's this visceral connection and, and I, I certainly think it has the opportunity to be uh, on, on, a, on a spiritual level and I think the kids the kids really sense that and so I think now more than ever, it's so essential. And there's so many uh, threats to our wild world today. And, and I, I'm a big believer that you know that this this next generation, we we have to get unplugged and connected to wild places like Yellowstone in hopes of inspiring uh, audacious guardians of, of a wild planet that is in many ways in peril.
0: And I think you uh, you believe passionately. This that it goes flows the other way as well, right? Uh, People have to come to love uh, Yellowstone and other ecosystems uh, because we have to fight to
1: preserve it. Without a doubt. You know, one of my favorite lines I always share in my presentations is that we only fight to save what we love, and we only love what we know, and we only know what we experience. And so, you know, I have many people who you know, <laughs> have said over the years, well, aren't you, you know, you're, you're working to inspire people to come to Yellowstone. Isn't Christian. there a, the, the chance that we can yeah. love this to death? And, you know, perhaps that's a valid argument. I, one, of, one of my favorite authors of all time uh, who wrote did, did much of his writing down in southern Utah, Edward Abbey, certainly spoke along those lines. But I believe in, the, in, in 2014, um, I, I believe in this time, our greatest threat to, Wild places is a lack of connection, and so i'm not I'm not as worried about us loving these these places to death as, as much as um I, I think what's what's essential right now is that we inspire that that love for place that connection to place so I'm a big believer that if we're gonna if we're gonna fight for something that matters you know, I'll, I'll give you a give you a little little story yesterday I was hoping to prep here for the interview a bit, but I ended up having a, a pretty uh, rugged bear with my my little one you know there's this just rampant uh development that that's that appears to be unchecked here in Bozeman Montana where we live on the fringe of of wild country and and uh, this development is certainly now taking place in our little neck of the woods, and uh, we, we've we got these two beautiful willow trees that must be 50, 60 years old, and uh, we, we've got, you know, pheasants in the area, we've got uh, Grant Richardson ground squirrels, and our favorite visitors, we have great horned owls that nest there, and we have Swainson hawks, and the Swainson hawks, you know, they, they migrate 14,000 miles round trip, you know, 7,000 miles one way from southern, uh, southern Chile and southern Argentina to come up and nest right now in our backyard, and I, I received a a text from a friend who was a former ranger that I worked with who's staying with us right now who just moved moved to the Bozeman area to be here in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And he said, Rev, they just tore down one of the willow trees. And my daughter has just been, uh, every time we pull up to the house for for the last several months, she gasps. When we come around the corner, and she sees her tree, you know, and she's developed this connection to on behalf of this tree and writing letters and you know went by the city commission meeting. And uh, my daughter created this big, beautiful sign that says, Save Our Tree, that we put out in front of the tree. And the, the gentleman who, who ripped out the tree the back came up to me uh, to this morning and said he went and shared the story with his wife and his, his, his mother, and they were both choked up and teary-eyed. And so it really speaks to the importance of inspiring that sense of. Of love, because I'll tell you, my little six-year-old certainly is coming out, battling and fighting
0: and swinging in defense of that that willow tree and that wildlife habitat. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, more with Michael Leach. His uh, new book is called "Grizzlies on My Mind: Essays of Adventure, Love, and Heartache from Yellowstone Country." And uh, we'll uh, tell some uh, have Michael Leach tell some stories, including a poignant story of uh, of a wolf who helped him at a at a hard time in his life. Uh, uh, known by the uh, impersonal name of 253M, known as Limpy to some. We'll uh, hear some tales of grizzly bears and bison, fighting for the bison, and uh, more about wild places and what that can do for us. We'll get into some of Michael Leach's personal story as well. His original dream was not park ranger. It was uh, glory on the basketball court. We'll talk about that as well. More with Michael Leach following this break.
1: Just when you thought it was safe to enter your garden. Well, there's a lot of reproducing going on as insects prepare for the fall. This Thursday on the Zesty Garden, USU Extension entomologist Diane Alston helps you control the bad guys while encouraging the good guys using integrated pest management. Die, earwigs. Live, lady beetles. Then it's the circle of life as Nancy Williams reads a favorite literary selection on Petals and Prose. That's this Thursday at 10 o'clock on the Zesty Garden.
0: Time to make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this tasty recipe for... Raisin Oat Muffin. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health, from PRI, Public Radio International.
1: Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Michael Leach, who uh, achieved his dream by the age of 22, becoming a Yellowstone Ranger. He's gone on to other things now, but he's still passionate about uh, the Yellowstone ecosystem. And he has a new book out, Book of Essays, Grizzlies on My Mind. It's a celebration of place, wildness, and the Yellowstone ecosystem. Uh, We're talking with Michael Leach on the program today. You can join this conversation, if you would like, to 1-800-826-1495. That's 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us by email to uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. What's your favorite Yellowstone story? Do you have a Yellowstone story? Favorite places in Yellowstone? Uh, This is a great place that uh, many of us are privileged to live uh, somewhat nearby and uh, visit. One of the great ecosystems in in the world. Michael Leach, I, w- I wonder if, if you could uh, talk a little bit about your original dream. You uh, you grew up in North Idaho, moved to Seattle at about age 10, and uh, yeah. found a passion for basketball.
1: But I was... That was it for sure. You know, my my great granddad uh, was one of the first state vets in Wyoming, and he's still this day the youngest to win the saddle bronc competition at Cheyenne Frontier Days, which we call the daddy of them all. And so, when I was a, a young man, a young boy in in Lane, Idaho, I had dreams and visions of of grandeur in the in the cowboy arena. But not long after moving to Seattle, you know, we found that uh, yeah, I, I I could I had a love for bouncing a a ball on a hardwood floor. And, uh, you know, kind of took that to, uh, to the extremes and, you know, worked, spent every day working, shooting my 500 jump shots a day and doing whatever I could to try and uh, take that, that dream to the next level of, of playing Division One college basketball. And so that was uh, certainly my, my, my sole focus, I would say, for, for a number of years. there, Probably about a, a six-year year
0: time period. What, what do you think that did for you? I guess as, as many young people, uh, sports can be a, a good focus.
1: Nelson Mandela, who, you know, once said that there's unmatched power in sport, you know, and, and I, I share that in all my motivational presentations when I'm speaking at high school, uh, to high school to students or when I'm speaking at conferences with administrators or people who are working with you, because I really believe that. I believe there's unmatched power in sport. One thing that we always tried to do in our in my environmental nonprofit was try, we tried to create recreate if you would that that team environment because there's just something powerful about especially in these small towns like Gardner Montana where I coached I mean you're out there representing your school you're out there representing your community you know you get together uh, six days a week you have these kids three days a week um, and you guys are going to war if you will and and so you're you have this opportunity to really uh Bring these kids together, weave connections that are tremendously powerful, and I think the the life lessons the core values, the character, the integrity uh the resiliency, the strength the courage um, you know just the, the the love and the passion that comes with with team sports when in the right setting uh, i I think is tremendously powerful so i I definitely think a bit of my resiliency you know i've I've, I've been through some some uh, health struggles uh, over the years and I think that uh, ability at a young age to go out there and kind of push and drive through the pain and pursue that dream, uh, it, it, if anything, created some resiliency in me. And I think it's we, we need to be gritty and scrappy and resilient in pursuit of our dreams. So,
0: you mentioned health problems, and this changed the the, the course of of your ambitions. Anyway, tell tell us about uh, about some of those health struggles.
1: I was uh, 19, you know, I was going, to, when I was 18, I was attending a, a junior college north of Seattle, Washington, where, where, you know, I'd had some injuries my senior year that kind of, uh, I lost my, my chance at that Division One scholarship, and so I went to a junior college, and there I got in a car accident a couple weeks before the, the season started, and, and this kind of, kick-started uh, some, some pretty severe back pain that lasted for about 18 months, and eventually I was diagnosed with a, a, rheumatoid, a rheumatoid arthritic uh, autoimmune disorder called ankylosing spondylitis, and it typically you know impacts the spine, um, but it also... Can impact the the joints, um, and it, call, it causes something called uh, ten- tendinopathy, uh, or and which is inflammation of the tendons where they attach it to the bones. So, I mean, my my left Achilles heel has been my Achilles heel, metaphorically, physically, um, certainly. And so, I mean, I just I fought some challenges there, and and it was about a year and a half that I. I really battled hard to try and come back and play uh, and my body just couldn't take the grind and so um, it was at 21 that that I realized okay it's time to to, to chalk this one up and and discover a new passion and so went back to home to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho went to North Idaho College and it was in an environmental study class that you know just this uh, passion for the environment uh, came about and and was inspired uh, by a teacher by the name of Dale Dale Marcy Uh, and then it was also right around that time seeing a PBS film about uh, the wolf introduction to Yellowstone National Park that really inspired me to uh, change directions and and you know focus on something uh, that, that I felt like could could have
0: a bigger impact on the the, the greater cause, if you will. You had an epiphany in Zion National Park. I understand it. You were you, you and your girlfriend uh-huh. who's bec- to become your yeah. uh, your wife uh, took a, a trip of the the parks in in southern Utah.
1: Tell us about I, you know, that. It was, it was a challenging time because, you know, I had been so uh, adventurous. I'd been an athlete my whole life, and here I was. Struggling with this uh, this autoimmune disorder that really was making things quite challenging physically, you know the pain, the swelling, uh, the knees, the Achilles, the back, what have you, and so you know typically if we went down to a place like Southern Utah, it was going to be and ultimately and then ended up uh, as I you know ebbed and flowed my way through some of those flares, We would go down there for mountain biking and rock climbing and the big adventurous stuff, but this, on this this first trip, it was really just about seeing seeing uh, an an amazing, what I like to call God's art gallery down there in the southwest, I mean, it's just an amazing place, and we're in Zion National Park, which, you know, we're big fans of Glacier National Park up here, and I call Zion the glacier of the the desert southwest, I mean, it's just a remarkable place, and we had seen a ranger uh, when we pulled in working at the front gate, and he was in a wheelchair. And it just inspired the heck out of me. And, and that night, uh, I it was a very sleepless night. And I think it was probably somewhere around four or five a.m. I, I woke up at Watchman's Campground there in Zion National Park in this, you know, cathedral of these monolithic rocks that were are just uh, were unlike anything I'd ever seen. And I went to the payphone and and phoned phoned my mom, who had been worried about you know her her boys because I certainly had, was, was feeling quite lost at that time with not knowing what the the future was going to be like physically and thought. I said, I know what I want to do. You know, I want to become a ranger. And so we spent the rest of that trip just talking to every ranger that would give us, you know, any any of their time, asking how they became how they became a ranger. So yeah, there's definitely a connection there to, to Zion and a gentleman there who has no idea the impact he he had on my life and therefore my daughter and the other people I've had the opportunity to work with since coming here to Yellowstone.
0: Then later on. Um you had an experience i think that not many have you're you're in yellowstone with your i, I guess now wife or maybe still girlfriend and uh, you decide to ask hey are there any openings which i i think is probably pretty unheard of
2: <laughs> I, I don't yeah, know.
1: You know i mean my my i i guess you know my the motivation of speaking down here this mission be audacious to inspire audacious guardians of our of our wild planet. You know, I guess my my mom would say I was audacious uh, at a young age in pursuit of those dreams, and I've always felt like, uh, you know, you you, you don't know till you ask, and so uh, we'd been there, we saved up some money uh, after watching this this documentary film on PBS about the wolf for introduction, and and I was, you know, growing up in North Idaho, you hear shoot, shovel, and shut up, the only good wolf's a dead wolf, Um, smoke a pack a day, and and I watched this documentary film about the wolf for introduction, and and just the the vitriolism, the, the, the anger, the hate towards this species really inspired me to uh, attempt to be a voice for the voiceless. And so we went to Yellowstone National Park. We planned on camping out for 21 days. We're out at Pebble Creek Campground, which is an amazing place out in the heart of the Lamar Valley, which we refer to as North America's Little Serengeti. And uh, there, uh, one day after a a big hike, I said, "You know, let's go up to the the headquarters, let's meet with someone in the admin office, and let's just ask these questions of how do you get hired. And so we went and we sat down, and this wonderful woman by the name of Carrie Lang sat down and talked with us for over an hour, and we asked all the right questions, and uh, she gave us all the right answers. But with that said, by the time we left, we we realized everyone around the, the parks, especially there in southern Utah, uh, when I would tell them the school of working in Yellowstone National Park, you know, they would say it was akin to wearing the pinstripes and playing for the Yankees out of the gate. You know that it was going to be a challenging place. To, it's the flagship park. You know, it, it's uh, you know the world's first national park, the crown jewel, and getting a job there would be quite challenging. And we certainly could see that, uh, that that was going to be the case. You know, there was people who had worked for the concessionaire in the park for five, six years before they had opportunity to become a ranger. And we left that meeting, and as we were walking to our car, Carrie came running out into the lawn and Said, Michael, Michael, you know, and sat and told us about uh, the, the district supervisor there at Mammoth Hot Springs, a man by the name of Brian Suderman, who I ended up working for for seven summers there in Yellowstone. That he had just lost one of his summer employers, one of the seasonal employees who had a, a family emergency and was forced to leave. And instead of going through all the files at the time, she's asked if I'd like to sit down and interview with them. And I don't think at that point I'd ever, you know, I was 22, I don't think I'd had any job interview of. of 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 that nature I sat down with them and uh, I think it was a week later that we we got the call and we celebrated from our campsite at Pebble Creek and and then went out for lunch at Cook City and a few days later I was wearing the the green and gray. Mm,
2: Yeah uh,
0: a great experience Um, we're talking with Michael Leach who uh, realized his dream age 22 we just heard how that happened becoming a a Yellowstone Ranger he uh, later became one of I think two uh, so-called bear rangers right talking about bears
1: right, yeah. We, t- we typically have anywhere from two to three Bear Education Rangers in the park. And so I was I was one of the two there on the Northern Range. Yeah.
0: Uh, so uh, we're encouraging you to, uh, to to contact us with your Yellowstone story at 1-800-826-1495, one 826 1495 or email us to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, the book is Grizzlies on My Mind, Essays of Adventure, Love, and Heartache from Yellowstone Country. Our guest is Michael Leach. Uh, and we have received a, uh, a story. In fact, it's a bear story. So it's a little bit lengthy, but uh, it's it's a pulse pounder. This is from Nick in uh, in Cache Valley. He says, yesterday at the annual Yellowstone trip, Witt, uh, G&G, Dutch, and I were driving from Cody, Wyoming to grab Grandpa's Insulin. And upon returning, we had a bear run across the road in front of our car. Grizzly or black, that's still up for debate. But as we traveled from canyon to tower, we ran into construction. And Wit, hoping for a good excuse, was getting restless. Dutch, who had gotten pretty good at working with binoculars, much to my relief of uh, keeping his mind off of food, gave them to uh, uh, GMA, I'm not sure who that is, who started looking at the ravine of the hill we were on. She suddenly realized that a bear had filled her vision. Then Grandpa said there was another bear, just one behind the first. Mom and the older cub, I'm guessing. Anyway, oh, wow. Dutch and uh, Grandma got out and started snapping photos. Me being behind the duo basically had to fight my way out of the gar- car to get pictures. I basically kicked uh, Grandma out of the way as uh, I'm not sure who GMA is. Out of the way as I stood up, could be Grandma, I, re- yeah. be grandma. I received yeah. a shock. Not, 50, not 15 to 20 yards in front of me was a black bear that, sure enough, not 10 yards behind was its cinnamon counterpart. Now, having worked in Yellowstone last summer, I knew the rule of stay 100 yards away from the bears. However, being the idiot I am, I stayed, putting uh, s- uh, snapping away. Wit had gone somewhere to snap professional photos while Grandma and I used our point and shoots. Me, now being in front of uh, Grandma and Dutch, had noticed uh, rangers telling us to get back in our cars. Suddenly, out of the corner of my eye, I see a massive 350-pound black muscle charging up the hill. As I turned and pushed Grandma and Dutch into the car, I see Mr. Bear go between Grandpa's car from behind and the car behind us. I then see and hear a girl scream and from the hill above see her start running as the bear came after her. At that moment, everyone, including Grandpa, start yelling, Don't run! Stand still! Of course, though, the girl ran, and as said previously, the bear started for her. Then at the last second, changed direction. I then turned to see Cinnamon Counter uh, part start to uh, cinnamon counterparts uh, start to slowly follow back. I, from the safety of the car, started snapping more photos of him standing on his hind legs to get a better view of the situation. Mr. Ranger then came and threw a large stick to scare cinnamon Bear back down the ravine away from us. A motorcyclist also helped scare cinnamon further by revving his bike. We then watched and snapped pictures of cinnamon at the bottom of the ravine. He and I stared at each other quite a few times. It's an event I'll never forget. That's Nick in uh, Logan. That's quite the uh, wow! You, quite the experience. That sounds like
1: something straight out of the the 1950s and 60s. There.
0: Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you you did, hearkening back. Uh, so these kind of incidents, I guess, happen less often. You're saying it
1: definitely. You know, from from 1931 to 1969, just to put things in perspective, you know, we averaged 48 bear inflicted injuries per year. And that was largely due to black bears. Uh, You know, the grizzly bears dominated the the big open pit garbage dumps that we had throughout the park. And um, one of those dumps back in the 1930s, the infamous Otter Creek uh, bear viewing area, they actually had erected a concrete viewing platform in the backcountry where they would put human garbage. And then they had auditorium-style bleachers. This was just south of Canyon. Um, Erected around the concrete viewing platform. And on any given night, you may have a couple thousand people watching... You know, upwards of 20, 25 grizzly bears feeding on anthropogenic human garbage, and so uh, that scene was a little safer, if you will. You had you had rangers present, and, and the bears were off at a distance. But the black bears, we received our first reports of roadside black bears panhandling for for human food sources in 1910, and that was five years before the first automobile was even allowed in Yellowstone. And so, from the 1930s all the way up until 1969, 1970. It It was 1970 when we closed down the garbage dumps and Finally began to enforce the, the the law that had been on the books since 1903, I believe, that banned bear feeding. But we, it was such a popular attraction to the park that rangers, you know, just just uh, looked the other way. And so up until 1970, they were allowed to feed bears in the park. And so it was incredibly common to have bears. When I was just down in Salt Lake this last week, I showed a number of images of, of black bears climbing into cars, black bears sitting in the driver's seat, you know, black bears being fed, putting all their, all, you know and their their front paws up on the on on the side doors of the vehicles, sticking their heads in, getting hand fed. So yeah, it's a it's a very different world now. Now we only average one bear inflicted injury per year. Uh, more often than than not, that tends to be a grizzly bear, and it just tends to be a, a fluke encounter. Uh, it's not that it's a rogue or, or or bad grizzly bear that's menacing and and seeking seeking out people. I actually find you know you you often hear. People describe grizzly bears as as menacing and and as um, as threatening and uh, and as unpredictable. I actually f- found in my time working in the park the bears to be quite predictable and quite tolerant of, of people, and so uh, some of these bears have a shorter, what we would call avoidance reaction distance. So they'll still hang out near the roads. And it really behooves a lot of the bears to do that because the big dominant male grizzly bears dominate the biggest, wildest, most untrammeled habitat. And so you'll tend to find your females with cubs of the year, like in this Nick's, Nick's case here, um, or, or your subadults often utilizing some of that roadside habitat. And some of the most succulent vegetation in the ecosystem is, is there along the road. So in some ways it kind of behooves them to have a shorter avoidance reaction distance they know they can probably charge people off and not have to deal with the, the big dominant male bears so uh, you know I, I saw some wild stuff during my time as a bear education ranger you know, in, in May and June you typically work bear jams what we call bear jams on almost a daily basis and I'm, i it certainly sounds like that was a perfect recipe that, that, that you just read for a bear jam um, but I, I never saw them get that uh, that wild so yeah. uh, it, but, but it's still, it still can happen especially if there's not not ranger presence but you know the the park does a really good job of managing these bear jams and hopefully still allowing people to to see the bears which i think is absolutely essential because i think that inspires uh, bear conservation uh, when people have that up close uh, encounter and are able to observe a a bear in its natural and wild setting Um, and and in the same breath i think it's a it's a good thing for the bears because they're able to use some some Pretty uh, valuable habitat that are uh, along the roads.
0: Um, what's your advice uh, to people? I- is a good advice to 100 yards away and and uh, don't run. And we, do, what's your general advice?
1: Yeah, de- definitely don't run. Whatever you do, don't ever don't run. Um, you, that certainly can can uh, evoke a predatorial instinct, if you will. I mean, I've seen I've seen pronghorn run through the Lamar Valley and catch the attention of a of a grizzly bear and the grizzly. You know, uh, almost unknowingly just sees the, the pronghorn flash out of the corner of his eye and turns and starts to run, and you may take a few steps and realize there's a pronghorn, not going to catch that. Uh, but just that, that, that movement, that, that abrupt movement, the running certainly can, can evoke a, a predatorial instinct to, to chase. So you certainly wouldn't want to run. You know, the, the, the big key at these bear jams, uh, along the park roads, you know, it's a different scenario in the in the backcountry. But along the roads, again, these these they call it an avoidance reaction distance. And these bears, they're not food conditioned. Very different than the situation you have down in let's say Yosemite, where you often have human habituated bears and food conditioned bears. You know, we had we had that back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s and 60s. But now we've got bears some of which are human habituated some which are not but but because they've done such a good job down in the park the national park service um, with the with the bear management policy, the gar- bear, bear-proof garbage cans, um, going through the campground, making sure that, that no food's left out, nothing with the scents left out, toothpaste, um, you know, cooking utensils, any, anything that could attract the bear that has the keenest sense of smell of any land mammal in North America, one of the keenest sense of smell of any land mammals in the world. It's approximately seven times that of a, a hound, a bloodhound. And so they've done a great job. And so these bears are not food conditioned, but some of them are human habituated. And what I found is there was times when we were managing a bear jam where we may only be 25 yards away in, in a large pullout. Um, and, and because we had rangers there, uh, it, that was not considered you know a violation because we were keeping things very pre- predictable. We were keeping people close together. Um, and, and we weren't creating any, any sudden movements that the minute you'd see someone kind of break away from the group, it would always get the attention of the bear. And our goal is to allow these bears to, to behave as naturally Naturally as possible because they're gearing up, like right now, they're going through a process called hyperphagia, which is intensive feeding, where they're gearing up for uh, one of the hardest things they're going to do all year, which is go through hibernation. And, and these bears, when they hibernate, they actually are, are quite active metabolically and physiologically speaking, and so they've got to put on a lot of weight. The pregnant females right now have got to got to put on a lot of calories, uh, upwards of you know 25 to 30,000 calories per day in, in hopes of putting on upwards of three and a half to 5 pounds. Per day to get through a very active hibernation period. So we we want to try not to disturb them. And so the big key is if there's not a ranger there. Yes, the the park rule is 100 yards from the bear. And if you're you know 100 yards, if you're closer than 100 yards, that's that's a a violation, can be a citation. And with that said, if you're 300 yards from a bear, if you're changing its behavior, that too would cons- be considered wildlife harassment. And so I think the biggest key when you're driving through the park is. If you see a bear along the road, before you stop, and we've got to think vehicle safety first, you've got to get all four tires off the side of the road. And once you get all four tires off the side of the road, and hopefully you do that in a safe zone without rolling, rolling the vehicle, you know, then you've got to assess the situation of whether it's safe to get out or not. And if there's no ranger there and, it's, and the bear is 50 yards away, you should definitely remain in your vehicle.
0: <laughs> You uh, you talk about um, I think you've had this experience lying awake in a backcountry tent listening for the breaths of a curious grizzly. There's yeah. something about the, uh, the the grizzly bear or, or any bear. I, I think it's fascinating. Uh, there's a it's a bit of danger because uh, a, as humans you know we could become far part of that food chain. <laughs> if you know uh, uh, an animal that could eat us, there there's yeah. something that really rivets our attention. What what is it about the bear?
1: I love. It. I think you hit it on the head, Tom. I think. I think you know. Uh, I, I show this image of this this big grizzly bear in Yellowstone during my my presentations. I like to call them my Yellowstone sermons. And I say that I think there's something so powerful when we journey into the backcountry of Yellowstone because we know we can be recycled back into the food chain. Now, the chances of that happening, I mean, we're more likely to get struck by lightning than we are to be killed by a grizzly bear. Um, and so uh, it, it's not the fear factor that I, that I like to promote. But with that said, you know, one of my favorite authors is, is one of, uh, a, Utah, a Utah lady, one of your very own, uh, Terry Tempest Williams. And she says, if you know wilderness in the same way that you know love, you'd be unwilling to let it go. This is the story of our past, and it will be the story of our future. Well, I've always said that if you know wilderness the way we do in in the Yellowstone ecosystem, you know, you'd know what separates our wilderness from just about any other in the lower 48 states uh, is its wildness. And I, and I think that's because for many of us, the animal that represents wildness at its most authentic level is, is the grizzly bear. And so we, we've got a saying up here in Montana and Wyoming uh, that if we were ever to lose the grizzly, we'd be just another Colorado. Uh, so we, 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 it's one of the things that I think makes this place so special it's what makes it so unique and and you know i have great fondness for wilderness areas in in colorado but i don't lose any sleep when i'm in the backcountry there (laughs) whereas when i'm in yellowstone country um you know that first essay of the book grizzlies on my mind the title essay you know we're on a 40 mile backpacking trip and we didn't see a grizzly bear on that entire trip but every little sound turns your head because you have grizzlies on your mind
0: yeah I like to uh, I guess surrounding states might maybe should adopt that as the motto you know uh, without X uh, you'd just be Colorado we <laughs> exactly. could do it <laughs> exactly. so so, uh, so an- angry yeah, Colorado good, residents should, actually, should my, call.
1: Best, my, my best response to that was down when the book was released I had the opportunity to uh, the Sierra Club brought me down I got to speak on the steps of the state capitol at a, a big rally protesting the Keystone pipeline and then I went over to tattered cover downtown which is a very iconic you know, indie bookstore in in the West and certainly in the Denver area it's it's cherished and I was got to speak as part of the Rocky Mountain Land series and I didn't know how that one was going to go over uh <laughs> but it actually went over pretty well. Everybody got a good good chuckle out of it. But I, I do I, I really believe that's why we struggled with, you know, what what should the title of this book be? Because as you know, I mean this book is not solely about grizzly bears. It's not solely about bears. But we, we, we chose that one because we wanted the, the, the Title essay to be something that I really felt like represented Yellowstone. And, and I think, you know, walking in the backcountry of Yellowstone, fishing the streams of Yellowstone, um, everything, Yellowstone, even walking through the geyser basin. I was doing book signings down at Old Faithful this May, and someone came running in and they just had a grisly encounter on the boardwalks. And so in the spring, you know, the bears will go down into that area for, for for the carcasses. And I think the fact that, you know, there was 50,000 plus grizzly bears in the lower 48 states as of, you know, 150 years ago, and, and the fact that they've been reduced to less than 2% of its historic range, I definitely think, you know... It, Yellowstone has historically always been a bear park, and, and I think the, the grizzly bear and, and that component of having grizzlies on your mind, I don't, most of us don't see grizzly bears in, in the park or in the backcountry, but I think it's just knowing they're there and having them on, on our mind that really makes Yellowstone one of the most extraordinary ecosystems on our planet
0: and i i think that sense of danger that's part of wildness and wilderness isn't it so, so you know you have to this this is different from home this is a place that you have to be careful in
1: yeah um, yeah i i very much believe that's the case i think you know we have to be we're more aware you know especially when you, I think when you're walking in in, in a wilderness setting and as you, you said in a wilderness setting where you could be recycled back into the food chain um, you know you're, you're much more aware you're much more aware of our surroundings and and I think that again is a, a very positive thing for people getting out into places and exploring Yellowstone as I think it uh, it, it enhances um, our, our sense of awareness, something our ancestors certainly uh, for generations experienced when exploring wild country. And I think it, it's easy for us to, to lose those, those uh, our, the, for those muscles, for those instincts to atrophy, but a, a walk through Yellowstone country, I've always said, is, is perfect rehabilitation for that.
0: We just have about five minutes left in the, in the program. Much else that we can talk about, of course, you have to read the book, <laughs> and the book is Grizzlies on My Mind. The author is uh, Michael Leach. Um, And there are a lot of good stories about, uh, as you call them, two-leggeds, some very interesting people work in Yellowstone. I'd like to, to, with the time remaining, uh, talk about wolves, and uh, specifically this very special wolf who, you know, piqued the imagination of many people. He was known by the boring name of 253M, also known as Limpy. Uh, Tell me a bit about him.
1: So, yeah. 253M, uh, some people called him Limpy, some people called him Gimpy, but he was he was an extraordinary and exceptional wolf. Um, you know, he, he was a member of the famous Druid uh, Peak Pack, which, which I would argue is probably the most famous wolf pack that there's, there's ever been. Um, there's been two documentary films done on them, and so he was the beta male to the alpha male, alpha number 21, who's probably one of the most famous wolves to ever walk this earth because of, of the, the documentary films that have been done on that pack. So he was the loyal beta, uh, which means you know he was essentially the right hand man to the, to the alpha male. Um, but at one point he wanted to he wanted to mate and I, I believe this was in 2002, I want to say. and so um, he, he was collared. Uh, upwards of 25% of the wolves in a, in a pack will, will be collared and so that's where they get the number. And so we can keep track of them via telemetry. Uh, But we lost his signal. And he turned up, I want to say about five weeks later, uh, it was 20 miles east of Ogden, Utah. And he was found, I, I believe it was in Morgan, Utah, in a coyote trap. Um, and so when they when they found him uh, Mike Jimenez with the US Fish and Wildlife Services uh, who's based there out of Wyoming brought him back up to Grand Teton National Park and from there 253 uh, basically on 3 legs now because he had injured one of his legs when he was younger uh, in, in, a, in a territorial dispute with another pack that had come into the Lamar Valley. Well, now he had injured his his one of his front legs with the, uh, the the coyote trap, and so here's this basically two-legged wolf. I mean, he had all four legs, but he was limping, and he worked his way through all this this wolf territory, and uh, you know a lone wolf in another wolf past territory can often spell trouble um, and the number one cause of death for, for wolves in this ecosystem are, are humans and the number two cause would be other wolves they're very very territorial species and he eventually made his way up to the Lamar Valley um, reunited with the Druids and when 21M died we thought he would become the alpha male uh, but this Don Juan, number 302 from the Leopolds, kind of rolled in and became the alpha male and 253 struck out again and this time found himself down in the Elk Refuge uh, outside of Jackson Hole there and uh, ended up finding a mate. And and, and, uh, he established his own pack um, before being shot during the first first Wyoming-sponsored wolf hunt.
0: So this, uh, and this wolf was important to a lot of people, but important to you, right? It served as some inspiration.
1: Yeah, you know, a friend of mine sent me a... uh a friend of mine sent me during a pretty challenging time a quote from the Ernest Shackleton expedition. It said something to the degree of, "Through endurance, we conquer." You know, and, and as a young man, it was hard for me to wrap my head around some of the challenges that I was facing from from a health standpoint. You know, just the the, the fatigue, the aches, the pains, the the, the amount of time in in limping around and walking bootcasts and what have you and so I definitely 253 became a great source of inspiration for me because 253 certainly never fell fell uh he never accepted the label of victim if you will and this is very I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing quite a bit here uh, but he still remained a very uh a, a big contributor he was a big contributor to that pack, and he was still a, a big factor uh, in, in in the hunt in pursuit of of the elk, which consists of over ninety percent of the, the wolf's diet there in that area. And so I definitely felt a, a little kinship, if you will, and and was inspired by watching uh, this this animal that uh, never fell um, victim to the label of, of injured or ill.
0: Uh, and, uh, and so, um, 253 uh, met a, a tragic end, and this has to do yeah. with protections which have uh, been instituted and then removed. A um, couple of states have wolf hunts, I believe, currently
1: idaho montana wyoming and you know and the, and, the, and that's been going on for quite some time now i you know the, it's it's it it troubles a lot of people here um the wolf population is stable at this point there's approximately uh, 1600 close to 1700 wolves and 30 320 packs i think about 78 breeding pairs in the Northern Rockies population right now. Um, you know, but the, the, the grizzly bear is facing a similar dilemma right now. You know, I just was invited to a meeting here back in in, in the spring because uh, there is a big push to delist grizzly bears. And grizzly bears have been listed as a threatened species for 39 years. They were listed as a threatened species in 1975, and, and the grizzly bear population is doing doing very well here today. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of us who are concerned. You know, about the, the future. Of the grizzly bear with, with climate change, with declining food sources such as the white bark pine, which is one of the, I believe, most important critical food sources for grizzly bears in this ecosystem. And so, you know, I, I'm certainly concerned. Uh, you know, here we are 39 years after listing them as a threatened species, and now local agencies. In this area, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming want to to harvest uh, grizzly bears, and I, even the word "harvest" I find to be a, a, an absurd attempt to desensitize us from what um, you know they would really like to do, which is reduce the the grizzly bear population in, in this region. And and I, I fully understand uh, you know the important role that hunting plays in this region, but um, I, I'm always left with the question, is is no place and no living creature sacred anymore? Uh, for if not you know, Yellowstone country and the southernmost population of grizzly bears in, in North America, I, I'm not sure what is. And so I, I definitely think we need to, uh, I believe we need a new narrative, Tom, and I believe it needs to be, uh, if we hope to provide the next generation and the next 200 generations, a just, verdant, and wild world. I think our, our narrative, our, our language, um, the way we talk about our connection to wild places and wild species needs to be one of, of love, of reverence, and, and
0: sacredness. We'll leave it there. The book is Grizzlies on My Mind Essays of Adventure, Love, and Heartache from Yellowstone Country. A lot of uh, interesting stories here and uh, uh, beautifully written. Michael Leach is the author and uh, he has joined us from uh, believe livingston
1: livingston montana yes yeah. sir
0: yeah beautiful beautiful area, uh, beautiful area. S- good luck with the book thank you very much
1: tom thank you so much i'm i'm just i'm humbled and, and was was thrilled to be here with you today i, I really appreciate the opportunity and and i hope we have provided a, a spirited and soulful dialogue for your your listeners
0: uh certainly hope so as well uh coming up tomorrow um we are going to talk about fairy tales and fractured fairy tales, to be specific. Uh, What do fairy tales mean, and uh, what uh, have the changes to that uh, uh, meant for us? Uh, Plays and books like Wicked, uh, Disney, uh, Into the Woods. Uh, We'll be talking with uh, Utah writer Rochelle Workman, who uh, rewrites fairy tales. And we'll also talk with folklorist at USU, uh, Lynn McNeil. That's coming up tomorrow on the program. And uh, for today, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crom Brothers Addison Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering plattered cookies and brownies, sandwiches, and box lunches. Information at CrumbBrothers.com And USU's anthropology museum in Old Maine, presenting the new exhibit, When I Was a Child. Children and Childhood in Cross-Cultural Perspective, Exploring the Responsibilities of Children in Different Cultures Around the World. Open 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. Thank you so much for listening to Access Utah. This is a service of uh, the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University.
0: Hi, it's Lynn Rossetto casper
1: So what does it say about the state of the American restaurant business when Time Magazine runs an article called The Gods of Food and not one woman is included on the list? Where are those female success stories? Well, join us this week on The Splendid Table from 8 p.m. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah Anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan. KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.